Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting August 7, 2015, we talk with Shanghai-born novelist Chu Xiaolong about his short story on the pollution, politics, and corruption behind China's smothering skies, the first fiction ever published by World Policy Journal in its new Climate's Cliff 2015 summer issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. This is 2015年1月份北京的PM2.5。我当时在北京,但我这一年里反复感觉到曲线的时候,想回忆当时有什么印象,什么感觉。但是记不起来了。那时候大家都说好像这场雾霾是偶然的气象原因导致的,就没当回事
rather than, you know, the, some academic papers. Let's look at some aspects of your story and their real-life counterparts. Start with the retired but still powerful communist leader who puts your Chief Inspector Chen on the trail of a secret pollution documentary. Do former leaders exercise such authority safely or at some peril? Oh, they do. And, uh, and in China, if you are talking about the retired leaders, it really depends who you are talking about. You know, some people can be retired in name, but can still be very powerful. And, of course, you know, some risks. But, you know, with this kind of complicated political power struggle at the top, so they do this kind of things all the time. A key element in your story is a counter-documentary being created by a pollution-producing industrial giant to smear the environmental filmmaker using video hacked from private computers and from omnipresent surveillance cameras. Has that kind of surveillance and monitoring become as smothering a fact of life in China as the smog? The counter-attack, as you have just mentioned by another video, that's kind of my invention for the story. But I was really angered by, you know, the post online or microblogging after Tai Jing's video came online. And some of the, you know, posts really attacked her personally. So that's, that's, that's really like, you know, a very real background, even though not so much in terms like, you know, uh, a video in itself. Now, about this kind of smearing by using surveillance camera, it's very common. It's very common in China. And people all know it's government controlled. But what can you do? Well, yet your inspector several times, uh, I was interested, makes phone calls from what you note are increasingly rare public telephones. Wouldn't such a policeman know or suspect that those communications especially are, are being tapped by his own colleagues or, or national security? Oh, that's another thing common. It's like, that's like open secret. We know that, you know, our uh, telephones are being tapped. More than 10 years ago, even when, you know, telephone was not that, you know, common, you know, this kind of uh, cell phone not common, even, like, I have to send an email in the Internet cafe. I have to show my passport. We know it's, it's being followed everywhere. Besides technology for surveillance, your story spotlights uh, use of the Internet, social media for propaganda. Talk about what you call the patriotic 50-cent posters. Oh, that's something interesting. Now, I believe, you know, the government realized quite a few years ago people are complaining online. So they want launch something like counterattack, right? So they want some people, and in Chinese, sometimes it's called sui jing. I don't know how to translate that. It's just this kind of people who post, you know, all the blogging and the post in support of the government, in support of the party leaders. And the contents are really cheap and poor and the and, and they can duplicate very easily. It's just usually like two or three sentences. 
So people joke about they do that, and they get money. They, they get paid for posting this kind of post online. So earlier, you know, the, the, they, 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 people say they get 50 cents per post, and then can duplicate, you know, hundreds of posts per day or something, make a living like that. And, again, it's, it's a common joke. If you go to, you know, Chinese website, you can see this kind of post all the time. And uh, this kind of 50-cent poster is also a new term in Chinese language nowadays. It's uh, like we call here, instead of a real grassroots support, you get astroturf support. It's artificial grassroots support. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think in China it's much more. It's like, you know, the government really puts a lot of money for that kind of purpose. And some people can even become promoted by the party authorities. So it's scandalous. Your story implies a power struggle within top Communist Party ranks, a split between those in power who remain devoted to China's, until very recently, stunning economic development, whatever the environmental dangers, and those who see leaders losing respect and credibility as millions suffer from those dangers. Uh, in reality, the party line People's Daily actually posted Chai Jing's film for a while. How serious do you think that schism is and tipping which way? Uh, I think you can call that as part of, you know, the power struggle at the top as well, because after Tai Jing's documentary came online, and the one question Chinese people ask, and even today some people are still talking about how and why, you know, the Chinese authority allowed this video come online, right? They know this could cause some, you know, controversies, and it's, they can silence that from very beginning. Of course, one thing you have to say is Tai Jing did her job, and uh, her people did the job really well. You know, before that, no one really knew anything. But how and why it, it was allowed to remain online for a few days, and we have all kinds of interpretation or scenario. And the one I read, it's not, again, it's not my invention online is because Tai Jing's video attacked, you know, the, what is called the petroleum gain in China's politics, okay? Some of the people are really high-ranking officials. So, the other fraction in the party thought it could be an opportunity to use the documentary to, you know, attack their rivals. So they did that, and the rival happened to be losing in the battle. But after a few days, maybe the purpose was served. Well, then the video disappeared. So. So there are a lot of, you know, interpretation about how this video can survive for a few days, yeah. Your story also suggests a split over pollution within business ranks. Uh, first talk about the kind of corruption, business government corruption, that promotes pollution. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, in my novel, it's kind of uh, before that story, Don't Cry Thai Lake, I discussed the issue of why 
you know, this kind of pollution, what pollution you can say is everywhere in the world, but why things become so out of control in China. For one thing, the Chinese party official get promoted basically because of what is called GDP result. Okay, so if like your the, the industry of your city is really making progress, and the next year you will be you know move up to a high level. So they don't care about like you know the environmental you know expense as long as they get promoted. Okay, and in China another situation it's it's also really worrisome is. I think I'm going to talk about in my next book is this kind of general corruption. It's not just like, you know, the party official, business people. So, yes, there are rules. You cannot do this. You cannot do that environmentally. But if you like, you know, bribe people, you just get away with that. Everybody knows that. So that's why things getting worse and worse in this kind of environmental situation. And we know some big firms are having trouble recruiting or paying foreign experts precisely because of unhealthy air. Talk about the influence business leaders, big bucks you call them, are likely to have on either side of this issue. Yeah, there are uh, two sides of this issue, definitely. Uh, like I have some, I know some friends, you know, Western friends in China, and uh, we often talk about why they don't want to stay on in China, because they have to worry about their, uh, not only their own health, but their family, right? Sometimes they ha even have to bring in all the stuff from abroad just because, you know, things got so polluted in China. They have to worry about their kids and like that. So this is definitely a serious situation, a disaster. Now, about the big bucks, uh, again, that's something uh, I have learned, like, you know, doing some research about this documentary. Yes, Tai Jing did this video with his own money, but apparently at the same time, she got support from other people, including some big bucks or wealthy businessmen. They also feel it's their responsibility to do something about the environment. So it, it does not mean that, you know, all the business people just want to make money. And I think that's something it's really important because people become more and more aware of their responsibility as a responsible citizen for the environment. So, yeah, this, this time... In this document, you can see a lot of, lot of like, you know, business people help Tai Jing do this documentary, yes. And has business industrial given more political power to the private business leaders, uh, whatever the point of view is, but in this case, especially those who see uh, either government policies or government enforcement of policies uh, creating problems for their own business? It's also complicated. You know, on the one hand, you can say definitely you know, the private sector you know, try to voice their own opinion about this and that. At the same time, I also want to say the government 
also does not want the, the pollution getting out of control. In China, we talk about lose face, right? When people come to Beijing or Shanghai, when they, they can't, could hardly breathe, it happened to me several times, like when I go back from St. Louis to Shanghai, Beijing. And uh, it's definitely not good for the Chinese image. So a lot of interest, conflict interest, you know, are getting involved in this kind of situation. We know that the actual documentary was pulled just days off after it made its viral splash, but I haven't been able to find any coverage since then of the documentarian herself, uh, Chai Jing. Do you know what's become of her if she had or will have a chance to read your story that she inspired, uh, what her reaction to it has been? I think so. I think, you know, nowadays, in spite of the government internet control, you know, people, intellectuals like Chai Jing, they can also be very clever, you know, with internet. So they, 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 they should be able, you know, to, to do something like that. I personally did not, you know, try to get in touch with her because, in China, you never know. This could cause other people trouble. But I do know, like, my Don't Cry Thai Lake, when it was published, several Chinese readers wrote me that we recognize one character in the novel. His name is Jiang. We recognize the same real character in real life, and we want, you know, to get in touch with him. And uh, I said, like, you know, I want, definitely want support, and if you want, give my book to, to him. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's more than possible, like, you know, she would know something. But I don't think Tai Jin right now is in real trouble. It's just like you won't be able to see her name in the newspaper, in official media, until God alone knows when. Chao Shu Long, thank you. Thank you. Chu Xiao Long is a Shanghai-born novelist writing in English about issues plaguing China, with works translated into more than 20 other languages. His short story headline, China's Smoke-Smothered Sky, is the first fiction ever published by World Policy Journal in the new Climates Cliff 2015 summer issue. Also featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on developing solar, wind, and nuclear power, about threats to the environment from Nicaragua to the Arctic, and about answers from six continents to the issue's big question, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with Nobel Prize winner Hiroshi Amano about the cool light of LEDs that he helped develop and their larger potential impact on energy, environment, and society. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.